We beheld his glory. Studies in John's gospel, this is part 15. I'm looking at the phrase from the last part of John chapter 3. John the Baptist's words, very famous. He, Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John 3, 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew, that's important, over purification. So this guy comes to John's disciples, and then the disciples, after this discussion, they go to John the Baptist, 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourself bear witness, bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And then, and then he goes on with this explanation that John records alone. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. He speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He says it twice. 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. 33, Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Come to Jesus and you see that God is true. That's where you see the truth. 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Speaking of Jesus. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. That's a big text. There's a lot in it. Just a quick point in passing. The obedience John talks about in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This, this kind of obedience, okay, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That kind of obedience is not obedience earning eternal life, qualifying. Rather, it's, it's what Paul talked about when he, he talked about deeds in keeping with repentance. I didn't make a slide for this because I just put it in this morning, but it's in Acts 26.20. Paul, speaking before King Agrippa, he says this, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, 
that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's what Paul says to Agrippa. There's, there's a kind of obedience. It's not earning salvation. It's, it's showing that I repent and I believe with my whole life that it's not just a passing fad and it's not just an academic thing. That's what's being said there. Now, to our text. Interestingly, the Apostle John tells us nothing whatsoever about the imprisonment of John the Baptist. You get that in Matthew, you get it in Mark, you get it in Luke. John doesn't talk about it, except for that one little phrase in verse 24, John had not yet been put into prison. That's all he says. It's not his main point of interest. And yet it is of interest that John gives us details in today's text that none of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them include. John's gospel is the only account that tells us something important happened between the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, okay, and the arrest of John the Baptist. Only the apostle John tells us that the ministries of John and Jesus overlapped for a little while. Only John tells us that. And this issue that arose out of it. That's where we land in today's text. We get to listen to the reaction of some of John's disciples to the apparent success of Jesus' ministry with those who once followed John the Baptist. People, John's the only one who tells us, the Apostle John. People were leaving John the Baptist, and they were going to Jesus. And this Jewish guy that comes and complains to John's disciples adds to it. So there's jealousy in today's text. Here's the order of our study this morning. The text kind of divides itself into two main parts. First, you get this glorious attitude of John the Baptist and all faithful servants of Christ that Jesus must get glory and gain prominence while everyone who points to him must fade in humility into the background. John the Baptist shines because he's very happy to attach people to Jesus and not to himself. And you won't see that in a lot of media ministries today. I said there were two main sections. This glorious attitude of John the Baptist first. And the second part, the reason... The reason John gives, why Jesus must increase and John the Baptist must decrease. And it's not just politeness. That that word must comes out of John's mouth twice in John 3.30. He must, I underlined it, increase. I must decrease. Has to happen this way, John says. Everything hinges on those two musts. Neither one can be left out. And for reasons we're going to study in a few minutes, everything about your faith and our eternal safety hinges on understanding why Jesus must increase and John must decrease. 
Remember, remember, it's not just that Jesus must increase. That's only 50% of it. It's equally important that John must decrease. We need to dig into that. So first, there's the question brought to John the Baptist by his Jewish followers and John's humble response. That's what we'll look at first. And then second, John's going to give a deep reason why it has to be this way. You all with me? Point number one. How sinners are made clean. Twenty-five. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. The issue on the table right there, purification. Can you see that? Is that marking up there? Okay. And this discussion was more than just an interesting theological debate. The Apostle John is careful to point out that it was a Jew. He says that. A faithful follower of the old covenant with God made with Abraham who made an approach to John the Baptist's disciples. And this Jewish guy and John's disciples, they're upset about something. And here's the issue. Gentiles, of course, were baptized as an act of repentance. Nobody complains about that. Jews, who were already God's chosen people, felt that they didn't need this. They were kept pure, A, by obedience to the Old Testament covenant. And when they failed, which they did, they relied on the Old Testament sacrificial system for atonement. So they knew what they were supposed to do. They tried to do it. Most of the time they did. And when they didn't, they had forgiveness through the sacrificial system. So the Jew felt we already have everything we need. Thank you very much. Gentiles, they need to repent. Those pagans. Now, that was of some concern to this Jew and to John the Baptist's disciples. John the Baptist and Jesus came on the seed, pronouncing a message of repentance and a baptism of repentance, but it was for Gentiles and Jews. And that's what's on this Jew's mind when he comes. Clearly, clearly, what we're seeing in this passage, though we don't feel the shock of it the way they would have, there's this great redemptive shakeup taking place in this text. With the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, God's Lamb, who was made flesh, to take away the sin, remember, of the whole world, everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. So obviously, a huge corner is being turned for these people right here. 
we're going to look at the nature of that change in just a minute. But the point here is simply, not everyone was happy with hearing this news. Good, devout, religious people needing to repent just because Jesus is here? A lot of people still have a hard time with that message. Okay, let's move on. Point number two. The only attitude that preserves faithful, fruitful ministry for Jesus. I have two texts that I want to look at. 26 to 30. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent to bear witness. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase I must decrease. One, one small detail is not really all that important. We know that Jesus himself didn't do the actual baptizing. John's going to tell us that in John 4, 1 and 2. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, than John Brackett, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So, when John says Jesus was baptizing, he means Jesus' disciples were being baptized, were baptizing, and it amounts to the same thing, just in case somebody points that out to you. But there's a great lesson here. For all who would point others to Christ, faithful followers, that's what we do. For all who would point others to Christ, Envy and competition are the great enemies to fruitfulness and joy. This is especially true when one has already had a measure of success in carrying out God's will. And, and, and here's why. Satan knows that our egos, my ego, my ego is more easily tripped up than my theology. My ego is more easily tripped up than my theology. So is yours. One doesn't have to deny anything about who Jesus is or why Jesus came to resent somebody else who has more outward success in ministry. While both errors are deadly, pride is probably more common than heresy. And it's a lot harder to root out. Sound teaching can take away heresy. But only radical humility can root out pride. So in this text, we see that John the Baptist's humility comes from his contentment in ministry. Let me explain. There's great protection from the root of pride when we constantly remind ourselves of our role in serving Jesus Christ in this world. We, I, we, 
don't automatically remember our role sometime as Christ's servants. That's what John the Baptist is getting at when he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John is telling his jealous disciples that that if they had been listening to him, if they had been listening to him, why does he feel he has to tell them again, you heard me. You heard me say, I'm not the Christ. I'm just preparing the way for him. John has to tell his disciples, you were there when I said this. How can you not remember that? I, I need to hear that kind of thing. What did they think John meant when he quoted Isaiah and told them that he was just a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord? And the answer is, they obviously hadn't thought it through. They heard the remarks, maybe over and over and over, without really considering them. So we learn we can save ourselves a lot of confusion, a lot of error, without learning anything new, simply by thinking deeply about what we've already heard. I need that. Let the Holy Spirit teach you basic truths over and over, and never assume that you've already learned them well enough. That attitude of pride creeps in. I can tell you a story. I hope it doesn't offend you on a Sunday morning. A.W. Tozer wrote a brilliant little editorial Palm Sunday, Jesus on the donkey riding into Jerusalem and everybody's throwing palm branches and putting their cloaks down in front of them. And A.W. Tozer tells the story of the donkey thinking, look at the fuss for me when I'm coming into Jerusalem. Look at the accolades. Look at these people. It's like they've never seen a donkey before. And now this is the part you have to forgive. These are not my words, but they are the exact words of A.W. Tozer. He said, never forget, all you are is the jackass who brings Jesus to people. There's people that are going to go home and say, Pastor Don said, (laughs) I was quoting, okay? Point number three. I love this picture that John gives. Servants of Christ are the best man, never the bridegroom. 329. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And he makes it clear that he's talking about himself as the friend. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So much here. John clearly sees himself as the best man and Jesus as the bridegroom. And there's one thing that makes them different. Everybody knows that the primary difference between the two is the bride goes with the bridegroom, not the best man. That's the very image that John uses. It's clever. John the Baptist uses it. 
And the never-to-be-forgotten principle here is the church is here for Christ rather than any of his servants. She is his bride. She doesn't exist for the best man, not ever. And, And the irony that John makes clear, this joy of mine right there, this joy of mine is complete. There's the irony. Remembering this truth that we're just friends of the bridegroom, that's where servants find their greatest joy. It all seems backwards, doesn't it? We live in a culture of power that would lead us to believe that the more ownership we take, the greater our joy will be. But in the church, it's never the case. Never the case. Forgetting our place. Forgetting my place. It turns us, here's why it takes the joy away. It turns us into the kind of whiny disciples who brought their bruised egos to John the Baptist in our text. Friends who think the bride belongs to them. They will manufacture all sorts of greed, pride, competition, pettiness that accompanies the lie of ownership. Four, why it matters that Jesus increases, that's what that should say, and John is decreasing. 3.30, he must increase but I must decrease. When we were kids, the four Horbin boys would get together on Saturday evening. Down in, it was an unfinished basement, but we had a TV, and we would watch Bugs Bunny. That's when cartoons were actually funny. And Mom would bring down hot dogs, The really crummy kind, white buns, wieners boiled in water, a little mustard. It's dinner, folks. And we will watch Bugs Bunny. He must increase, I must decrease. This is not like those two chipmunks on Bugs Bunny. After you. Oh, no, no, after you. No, 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 after you. No, I insist, after you. That's not what's going on here. And there's something here that's foundationally important. I hope you see it. When John the Baptist says, I have to, I must, I have to decrease, he recognizes that he represents a whole religious system that was designed by God to get the world ready for Jesus. That's why he quotes Isaiah, voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So when John says he himself must decrease, he is saying the only way for Jesus to take center stage is for the, that whole old covenant, that whole sacrificial system, the law system, that whole system of preparation that's got to get off the scene. It has to pass away. I must decrease. So in other words, John must decrease because He represents something which, if persisted in, prevents the very introduction that it was designed to publish. I mean, that whole old preparatory covenant will become idolatrous and dead if it's treated as the goal 
rather than just pointing to the goal, the coming of Jesus. So, truly, very truly, John the Baptist knew of what he spoke when he said, I must, I absolutely must get out of the way. We're done with the preparatory system. In our world today, the same lesson holds. It's not that we say there are no good things said or done in other religious systems. That's not the case. But now, as then, anything that doesn't allow for the increasing greatness and centrality of Jesus Christ and his redemptive work becomes an enemy of salvation for the world. Let me say it as bluntly as I know how. Christian exclusivism is the only demonstration of Father God's compassion in this world. Never fear that God-ordained reputation. It is just Jesus who saves. Point number five. Where do we go when we want to hear the words of God himself? That's in our text. 31 to 34. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth, that's John the Baptist, belongs to the earth, speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. I'm going to talk about this yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Look, he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. A lot there. If you read those words carefully, you're going to notice something really strange. First, you read verse 32, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Do you see that? Yet no one receives his testimony. Now read verse 26. And they came to John and said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. You should see something that doesn't work in those two passages. No one receives his testimony, 32. Everyone is going to him, 26. Do you see something wrong with that? Everybody's going to him. No one receives his testimony. Which is it? How can both those statements be true? And we're immediately reminded of these words from John chapter 2, when he's in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But on his part, that's the important part, he did not entrust himself to them. He knew all people. So you see this? It's being played out again, folks. You see this this difference between thoughtlessly mingling with Jesus and deeply following Jesus. There's, There's a blind, sentimental, religious attachment to Jesus 
and there's a life-dominating personal trust in Jesus. And a big point of the difference is found in the text we're studying under this fifth point. What do you hear when Jesus speaks in his word or in some teaching by the Holy Spirit to your heart? What do you hear when Jesus speaks? Is the voice of Jesus one of many options? Do I think I can follow Jesus and still work on a realistic, workable approach to my life with my own agenda, my own schedule? And, and, here's, and here's why that will never work. He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. You, you can no more have a Christian faith on your own terms than you can draw a square circle. God never debates. He never offers advice. And our culture needs to hear this text. The Christian life can't be self-defined. It can't be self-styled. I hear that all the time. People mean well. They're probably bruised in some area, maybe with a close relative or a friend, and they'll say, Pastor Don, their Christianity isn't going to look like your Christianity. You know, you're just going to have to accept that. And John reminds us we, we don't get to modify. John's point goes even deeper. You can rely on the words of Jesus. They're God's words. And here's the thing. They will be life-changing to you because 34, he gives the Spirit without measure. The words of Jesus don't just come like dead weight. The words of Jesus, if you hear them deeply and seriously and commit to them, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just speech. It's not just print on page. It's the words of Jesus, believed, obeyed, and then they're empowered by the Holy Spirit in, in lives. Can't, you can't mess with that. Six, we're almost done. The kind of life where the wrath of God never goes away. I hope you notice I've taken the verses in sequence. This is where John kind of wraps up. It's not good teaching, is it? Because you're supposed to have a positive kind of a wrap up. The kind of life where God's wrath never goes away. Look at 35 and 36. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So anything that God's going to give, anything that's going to come from God is going to come is going to come from his hand because the Father has decided he's going to work that way. Everything comes through the Son's hand. So whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Jew, Gentile, anybody. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, there's that W word, the wrath of God, he says it remains, John says. We'll talk about some stuff here before we close. When John says the Father loves the Son, he means more than just the obvious truth that the Son is the object of the Father's affection. That's true. 
But that's not all John is saying. The context of those two verses, they sort of show John's point, that the love of the Father is channeled through the Son. He's put everything into his hand. It comes through the Son in a way that is so exclusive that there's nothing left outside the Son but the righteous and just wrath of God. So, so, if one chooses to play lightly with devotion to the Son, there's, there's nowhere else to go. That's the point. There's nowhere else to go where God's wrath hasn't settled. Because the only place where that hasn't settled is on the Son, because Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross. If you want to flee God's wrath, you get to the Son. If you're outside the Son... There is not, there's nowhere else to go. There is nothing else but divine wrath. This is why John doesn't say that outside the sun, God's wrath is poured out. That's not what he says. He simply says it remains. It remains on him. So what that means, think about it. What that means is, this is not some sudden, surprising temper tantrum on the part of a ticked-off God. We find it hard to get our minds around it. God's love comes through Christ just like warmth comes through the sun. You take away the sun... There's nothing left but darkness. It's not the sun's fault. That's because the warmth and the heat comes from the sun. There's nothing left from the Father other than wrath if we reject his love, reject his love through the sun on the cross. We need to consider that word remains just for a sec. The wrath of God remains. I find it hard to wrap my mind around that because everyone in this room, we are creatures of time. We fluctuate, we vacillate in everything we do. We find it almost impossible not to change in our affections, our emotions, sometimes our values, sometimes our convictions. We are creatures of change. And there's a good side to that. The pain that comes from things that once broke our heart, it can, it can gradually, if not heal, at least fade just with the passing of time. Some of the things that we regret in moments of failure, they don't sting forever and ever and ever. Some of the things that we once felt were important, time has revealed they weren't as important as we thought. That's what time does. But there's also a problem. There's a problem. When we sin, we can... We can almost forget about those sinful points of rebellion as the years roll by. It's, it's not that anything has been made right. It's not that anything's been repented of. But the sting of guilt fades 
And that can be a great source of false comfort for people like we. What happens to habits of compromise that once felt glaringly wicked but now don't hurt anymore? Our sense of guilt can fade, leaving us increasingly comfortable with past transgressions. Because they no longer feel that bad, they mustn't be that bad. Is this what John addresses when he tells us, in spite of the careless conditioning of our conscience and the smiley applause of a warped culture, that this moral cooling never happens with our eternal outside-of-time God. Is this what he means when he pleads for a sharp sense of obedience because the wrath of God, it just remains, even though we've long convinced ourselves that it doesn't anymore? Outside of obedience to Christ, devotion to Christ, what the Bible means when it talks about believing in Christ, outside of that, there's nothing that remains anywhere except God's wrath. It, it just, it just, it says it, it's frightening. It just remains. It never goes away. It remains. Just in closing, notice the way John substitutes obeying Jesus for believing in Jesus in that verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John doesn't think it's a bad place to end. <laughs> Not a bad place to end a sermon in the Apostle John. But we need to think freshly about if the gospel is a wonderful thing to accept, if that's true, if it is the best news ever, and it is, if it's a wonderful thing to accept, it must be a terrible thing to reject, right? Doesn't it have to be that way? If it's not a terrible thing to reject, it can't be that wonderful to accept. The difference is marginal. You, whenever anybody comes to Jesus in a living, obedient, repentant, dedicated way, whenever anybody comes to Jesus, the change is greater than we think. They are stepping out of the wrath of God, stepping into his absolutely unearned, free, marvelous, pardoning, everlasting grace. And if you haven't done that, it's more than just a nice wish or a neat religion. You're in desperate need of Jesus if you only knew it. If you only knew it. Let's pray.